Welcome to the BCMA podcast webinar series. This podcast is converted webinar audio. Broadcast. Wonderful. Excellent. So folks should be able to join. Lovely. I see some folks joining. That's fantastic. That's always a good sign. Welcome. Welcome. Just going to get started in just a moment. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Just doing all my little tech checks. Well, let's get going. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the British Columbia Museums Association webinar. My name is Lorenda Calvert, and I will be your host for today. Today's webinar topic is Living Wages in BC and its benefits to your site and staff. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that as an organization of provincial scope, the BCMA recognizes that its members, today's presenters, and attendees occupy the lands and territories of BC's Indigenous people. We ask all of you to reflect on the places where you reside and work and to respect the diversity of the cultures and experiences that form its richness. Today I'm joining you from my home in the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen people for the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. I invite you to share in the chat um, your name and where you're joining from. Today's session is presented by Living Wage BC, the Vancouver Foundation and Center A, and we thank you so much for spending your time and expertise here with us this morning. As I mentioned, I'm your webinar host. My name is Lorenda Calvert. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the programs coordinator with the BC Museums Association. If you're having any technical challenges today, please do email uh, Vanessa at operations at museum.bc.ca and she'll help you out and get you set up today. I don't have my camera on, so I'm gonna do a visual description of my slides and uh, what I look like as there's a photo of myself on the slides. I have long blonde hair thrown over my shoulders. I have uh, pale, fair skin, blue eyes. I'm smiling with all my teeth showing. Um, I'm wearing a corduroy uh, shirt jacket and underneath that a striped sweater, which is brown, tan, purple, and fuchsia. The slides I'm sharing right now are just summarizing some of the things I'm saying to you verbally. The slides are white, light blue, with a gray text, and it's just a few bullet points of what I'm saying to you right now. If you're new to Zoom or returning to Zoom, uh, just a reminder to post questions in the chat or the Q&A. You can't find the chat or Q&A button. The task bar where those lo are located might be hidden from you. So just hover your mouse at the top or bottom of your screen and that task bar should emerge. That taskbar is also where you will find the closed captioning button as we have a live transcript and closed captioning enabled today. The session is recorded, um, but because it is a webinar, your video as a participant is not shared. Um, but if you do have any uh, coworkers or um, colleagues who are unable to join today, a recording link will be sent out in our follow-up email after the session. As I mentioned, today's uh, presentation is brought to you by Anastasia French from Living Wage BC, Henry Liu, Executive Director of Center A, and Dara Parker, Vice President, Grants and Community Initiatives from the Vancouver Foundation. We're going to start our presentation today with Anastasia, so I'm going to stop sharing my screen and pass it on to you. Hi everyone, uh, lovely. Thank you so much for those for those that are that are, that are watching. Um, I'm going to give a bit of an introduction into kind of what is a living wage, uh, what is a living wage employer, and kind of the basics uh, before handing to Henry and Dara, who can very much share it from their from their perspectives. So, let me. So yeah, uh, I'm Anastasia. Uh, my pronouns is she unceded uh, and stolen territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Uh, and I'm here from Living Wage for Families BC. And Living Wage for Families BC is a program of first call child and youth advocacy society. Uh, 
And the reason that we calculate a living wage and the reason that this kind of movement started at all is because the majority of families in BC that are living in poverty are working and they're working really, really hard. And we know that paying a, paying a living wage can be the key solution to, get it, to getting them out of poverty and also to break the cycle of poverty. Because um, when kids grow up in poverty, they're more likely to end up in poverty as adults. So if we can get, if we can get all the everyone earning a living wage, then, then that can help lift people out of poverty. And by doing this, what we do is we partner with the CCPA to help calculate the living wage for communities across British Columbia. We certify those employers who commit to pay both their direct staff and their contracted workers a living wage. And we also advocate for government policies to help families make ends meet. And so that's that's uh, initiatives to both uh, increase the minimum wage and also initiatives to lower the cost of living for uh, for families. Anna? First of all, what? is the what is the living wage it's a really it's an understandable question uh, so the minimum wage just so that folks know the minimum wage is the minimum that you legally have to pay your staff and the minimum wage in bc at this exact moment in time is 15 dollars 20 an hour however that doesn't actually reflect the cost of living uh, what we do is we calculate what the cost of living is for a family of four and that's two parents who are both working full-time with two kids and the costs they really need to be able to make ends meet it really is a bare bones budget the cost of housing that we use is a really uh, conservative calculation we use uh it includes the cost of childcare, food clothing really just the essentials for, for living it doesn't include things like repaying debt um or um uh expense like international vacations or anything like that it's really a bare bones calculation that you need and as you can see from this map the living wage varies across the province from um 21 15 dollars an hour in the Clyde Sound region because to feed in places like Tofino and Eucalyptus, uh, housing is really expensive to um for the majority of people in, in BC they're based in Vancouver and Victoria the living wage is around $20.50 an hour um and it, it varies across the province based on largely driven by the differences in housing and so you can see from that map there just some of the living wage rates that there are Sorry, and the living wage. Oh. Just to interrupt, um, I'm just noticing that the transcript isn't able to keep up with you. Are you able to go just a little bit slower? Sure. Sorry about that. That's because uh, no, all I've had today is coffee, and I, <laughs> I, I, I definitely talk too quickly. That is definitely uh, an issue. So I will slow down. Thank you for that direction. Thank you so um, much. <laughs> Uh, and then what is a living wage employer? A living wage employer is someone who commits to paying both their direct staff and their contracted workers the living wage rate for their region. Um, and we saw on the previous slide what those living wage rates were. Uh, and a living wage, uh, that living wage rate can include both base wage and benefits. So if, uh, if an employer offers, for example, a health and dental plan, that means that an individual doesn't have to take one out for themselves and for their family. And so that will lower their living wage rate. And so instead it might be that instead of an employer paying 20.52 an hour, they only have to pay 19.50. Uh, and we have a calculator that can help work out the value of those different benefits. We, we now have nearly 400 living wage employers across the province. And those living wage employers are from a variety of different sectors. Um, we have them, they're construction firms, they're non-profits, they're for-profits, they're municipalities. They're large organizations with over a thousand staff to teeny tiny organizations with one or two staff. Um, they really vary in the in what they do. But I'm talking to, you, to all of you folks in the um, museum and art sector. So I wanted to just shine a light on some of those employers that we have in that, um, arts and culture space. I recognize that some of these that listed aren't necessarily um, spaces uh, like art galleries or museums, but hopefully it reflects that these different organizations have committed to paying their direct staff and their contracted workers a living wage. So hopefully, hopefully uh, where you do is too. Um, in particular, you can see Center A there and uh, Henry will be talking in a minute about his experiences as a living wage employer and why he, um, why he became a living wage employer and what he's found from doing so. But before we kind of go into the benefits of being a living wage employer, I think it's important to look first at workers because they're the ones who, who, who need to be earning a living wage. And I think everyone can think of the benefits that workers find from earning a living wage. But Caroline's story here helps shine a real light on, um, on why workers should be earning a living wage. And I think in particular for this, for this sector, something that I've reflected on quite a lot going into this webinar is that there are lots of people who work in museums, museums, art galleries, libraries, and they work for these different organizations because they are super passionate about what they do. They love what they do. They enjoy they enjoy making a difference on all those pieces and i think that's really important and really vital 
but also what's really vital is that you earn enough to be able to pay the bills <laughs> that you can earn enough to be able to get by and that's why kind of a living wage is vital regardless of the industry that you're in um and so this is caroline's story she lives on vancouver island uh she's worked for her living wage employer since june last year she's a support worker so this isn't the arts gallery space but it's still she works for a non-profit and she really enjoys working there the benefits they offer and the fact they offer time off and wellness but in previous jobs she didn't earn a living wage and it, her life was very different to make ends meet she used to work every single day putting her health at risk and meaning that she couldn't spend time with her family she was always worried it was really really stressful but and now she earns a living wage there are certain basics that she can now afford uh she can afford to go to the dentist to buy a winter jacket nicer groceries um and we hear this uh, these are just the common things and the difference it can make and then they're, they're not they're not lavish things being able to go to the dentist they're the essentials you need for life but for Caroline, and I hear this from a lot of women that I speak to, um, the biggest difference that earning a living wage has made is that it's been on her independence. And this is a direct quote from her, is that she no longer has to cozy up in relationships that she doesn't want to be in because she doesn't earn enough money. She no longer has to depend on guys to buy her drinks or to buy food or to buy those things because she earns enough money for that. Um, and we know that with the majority of people who are earning minimum wage and not earning a living wage are women. They're people of color, they're um, people who are already experiencing discrimination for a lot of different reasons. And this is just another reason why um, that helps sort of that, that keeps them keeps them uh, unable to kind of lift themselves out of poverty. And so if we can ensure they're earning a living wage, then that's one of the key tools in doing this. But it's not just workers who find a benefit from earning a living wage, it's employers too. 97% uh, of living wage employers in BC have found a benefit from being part of the program. And Henry will talk more about the benefit that he's found, but just to hear, just to shine a light on the different benefits that these organizations have found. Um, ultimately, the biggest one is good publicity, uh, but also in terms of working and um, kind of the economic business benefits, uh, increased staff morale, uh, it's helping them live their values. It helps with recruiting staff. It lowers staff turnover. It increases productivity, um, as well as employees telling us that they don't want their staff to have to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. They don't want their, 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 their colleagues to come in stressed because they're working two different jobs and they're exhausted. And if they can earn a living wage, then they only have to work one job and that's more time that they can spend with their family and in the local community. There's also a ripple effect through supply chains um, and a benefit for the communities. We know that working poverty has enormous fiscal implications for social programs, for healthcare, for education, for employment and those pieces. And as I said, that if the majority of people who are living in poverty are working, then they should be earning a living wage and that can help lift them out of poverty. And those with lower incomes tend to spend more money locally. So when someone on a, on a low income gets a pay increase, that money is far more likely to be spent within the local community and within local businesses, helping to strengthen small and community focused businesses. When people on higher income uh, receive pay increases, often they invest that money, they may use it for international vacations, and it's it may be less on investing back into the local community to those with lower incomes getting that pay increase. Uh, and now, oh, I've swapped this round. Uh, now we're going to hear from um, Henry, who's going to share, who's going to share his experiences as a living wage employer, why he's doing it and the benefits that he's found. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Henry Honglu. I'm the executive director and curator of uh, Center A, Vancouver International Center uh, for Contemporary Asian Art. And we are a public art gallery dedicated to Asian and Asian diasporic uh, perspectives. Um, and we are situated um, in Vancouver's Chinatown on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Sabertooth, and Squamish. Uh, First Nations on which we cre uh, create and uh, learn and uh, deliver programs. Uh, we're grateful to have the opportunity to uh, work on this land. And I'm also speaking uh, today from um, the, uh, the territories of the Musqueam, Silvertooth and um, Squamish peoples. Um, and um, uh, that was a great uh, introduction to uh, a living wage uh, from uh, Anastasia, and uh, perhaps I can speak a little bit about um, uh, why Century became um, a living wage employer and then uh, sort of some of the, um, the benefits uh, that we have seen as an organization. So definitely I think that uh, because uh, the organization, it's, um, we have uh, uh, small but very dedicated staff. So, um, uh, and it's a very close knit team. So, um, uh, paying the living wage really um, 
gives uh, gives a more sort of fair and uh, equitable uh, kind of environment where everybody work. And um, I also think that because uh, the arts and culture sector, especially in nonprofits, um, uh, the staff, uh, the labor, it's uh, underpaid. So uh, paying the living wage uh, can be such an encouragement for um, uh, for the arts and cultural workers um, uh, working in this field, especially those uh, who uh, just graduated and also um, who, who are sort of ready and eager to make a career in uh, um, the arts and cultural sector. So I think that the living wage will be uh, such an encouragement. And definitely, I think that um, also for us, we have received, I would say, um, uh, more applications uh, of higher quality uh, since we sort of demonstrated uh, or we uh, included in our um, uh, job postings and um, uh, sort of public messaging that we are a living wage employer. Um, so that's, uh, that's great. Uh, but also I think that uh, it demonstrates um, uh, a sense of uh, responsibility, but also care because um, it, it delivers, it, it really um, puts out a message that you care about uh, who you work with and also uh, who you get, uh, how you uh, value their work and uh, their contribution to the workplace. So, um, Definitely, I think that's uh, a, a great pro. Um, yeah, I think that's most, uh, the majority of the points uh, I would say. And uh, uh, I would say, why not? Uh, if you're able to, I, and I definitely understand that uh, different organizations have different realities, uh, but I think that um, it is a sector that needs more support and, um, uh, Definitely, I encourage more <laughs> organizations to join. Um, I would call this uh, uh, advocacy and movement. So that's me. <laughs> I can talk more when your questions and <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Henry. And Henry is on hand and will be available later to, to answer any questions you might have as well um, with those pieces. Um, something when we were when we were again planning planning this workshop something we reflected on is that for arts and culture spaces often um they'd like to pay a living wage but they're really dependent on funding from different sources and if that funding isn't paid at a living wage then um they can't necessarily uh pay a living wage but what's been amazing for us is that one of our key allies in the movement uh both they help support us as um they're one of our big funders but they're also a living wage employer themselves and a really big advocate is the vancouver foundation they help support um hundreds of uh, cultural spaces across across vancouver and and they, as part of them, are passionate and committed to paying a living wage um, as part of their grants. And so I thought it'd be really useful to hear from Dara about why they do that and why um, paying a living wage is crucial for them as part of their kind of their role as a funder, um, as well as an employer themselves. Thanks, Anastasia. And hi, everyone. My name is Dara. I work at Vancouver Foundation, and I'm joining today from the unceded traditional territories of the Silks Okanagan people. Um, and it's just a beautiful day here, and spring has sprung, and I'm so grateful to be uh, in these lands that have been stewarded by the Silks Okanagan for so long. And I think Anna did a really good job of pointing out why this is a systemic issue. And Vancouver Foundation has been focused on funding systemic issues since 2015. Uh, and so I, I just want to maybe start by sharing my feminist rage around why this is an issue in the first place and why it's particularly problematic in the nonprofit and charitable sector. Um, we know that our sector is uh, underfunded for the complex work we're being tasked with. Um, and I connect that directly to the fact that 85% of people that work in the charitable sector identify as women. And I think that feminization of the sector contributes to the devaluing of the sector and the underfunding of the sector. And the fact that our origin story starts in the voluntary sector. And so there's an expectation when we're doing uh, work for the social good 
uh, that we do it on good feelings and sort of butterfly kisses and maybe silly string. Uh, and that's just not adequate to provide high quality service. And so often the place uh, where people try to save money, well, people try to save money in every possible arena, including on salary and compensation. Um, so I'm just very angry about that. <laughs> I'm saying it with a smile, but I invite you to join in my feminist rage around this. Um, so uh, that's the first point. It's a systemic issue. It sucks. Um, second point is, yes, Vancouver Foundation is in the privileged position of being able to become a certified living wage employer fairly easily. Having, I describe my career as having spent uh, 15 plus years asking for money and the last six trying to give it away. And so I have a lot of empathy for folks who are trying to keep organizations afloat, who are writing grants, who are trying to engage donors and asking for more money. And being on the funding side makes it easier for us to be a living wage employer. And we did that because we want to put our money where our mouth is. And we know it's important to compensate staff appropriately in doing the work of, of changing the world. Um, and we also wanted to responsibly use our influence to help the sector shift out of this bare bones mentality, as Anna put it. Uh, so in 2015, we got certified. In 2017, we took a number of steps to try and responsibly use the influence we could have in the sector to encourage others to become living wage employers. So on our all of our grant application forms, we do uh, note that we are a living wage employer and encourage uh, folks who are writing grants to consider uh, the that they build in budgets that will enable them to pay a living wage. We also have a public statement on our website that says the same thing. Uh, we try to engage in this conversation with other funders as well. So I'm going to come back to that point, but where we can, we, we speak to others. Uh, and then we've also engaged the province and because we know that they're one of the most significant funders in BC. Um, and then the third point I want to make is about the perception versus reality. So I've been with Vancouver Foundation for three years. And before my time, we became a living wage employer and encouraged the, our grantees and, and applicants to be living, to pay living wages themselves. And I find that's not the general perception among our grantees. I think the narrative around taking a bare bones approach within our sector is so prevalent that folks respond to that narrative because we know that there's hesitation in talking about how much we pay for what's often referred to as administration, uh, that uh, all kinds of organizations are under pressure to minimize the, the administrative costs so that, you know, everything goes to programs. Uh, and I'm putting those in quotation marks because I just think that's a false dichotomy. And I think it's one that often nonprofit organizations are complicit in. When we run fundraising campaigns that uh, ask or that um, promote spending 100% of whatever we've raised on programs, I think we're contributing to that narrative and upholding it when we know that that's just not how organizations work that in fact we need to pay what it costs to do excellent work. And that's rarely an arbitrary 10 or 15%. Um, and it has the implications of impacting people like the story that Anna shared uh, and all of us on this call. Um, so what I said, I'd come back to speaking to other funders. What I found is that it is more and more commonly understood among funders that we need to pay living wages and we need to provide funding streams that are flexible enough to encourage that. Um, so I see this really big gap between what grantees perceive and because of the power dynamic that exists between funders and fundees, often the fundee won't raise the conversation because they don't want to be perceived as being greedy or wasteful um, all of those things. And I think not talking about it <laughs> further exacerbates the problem. Uh, and then finally, that there's a tension between sort of the carrot and stick approach. You know, Vancouver Foundation certainly could have made the choice to require that all of our applicants become living wage funders. But I think the issue is that it is a systemic problem. And so one actor making a change 
we believe would disproportionately punish smaller organizations. And those are also the organizations that are often led by equity denied groups who already experience multiple barriers to funding. And so we've deliberately chosen to take a, a softer approach, encouraging folks to think about this and trying to be uh, very transparent about our intentions. Um, but I think that's a tricky one. So I would welcome feedback as a funder around uh, how to make this clear and how to navigate that tension uh, and support the folks who are making the hard choices to pay a living wage. Thanks, folks. Thanks very much. Uh, I guess it's over to the floor. If anyone wants to has got any questions, if you'd like to write it in the chat, and then Henry, Dara, and I are happy to answer it. Um, I don't know, Lorenda, unless you've got anything else you want to add. No, no. I, let me. Uh, I have a slide I can throw up that um, reminds folks where and how to post your questions. So it should be filling your screen now. Um, so again, if you are unfamiliar with Zoom or returning to Zoom, you can post your questions in the chat or Q and A. If you're unsure where to find that, you can hover your mouse at the top or bottom of your screen, and that should appear. Um, also, if you would prefer to pose your question verbally, you can do so by selecting the raise hand button. Um, I'll see that on my participant list, and then I can provide you the opportunity to unmute yourself and pose your question verbally. Um, so one question that I might get us started off with, um, Anastasia, is if you would like to provide some, I don't know, discourse or conversation on the fact that in Vancouver or Victoria, a living wage is going to be significant um, just based, based off of like housing and, and stuff like that. So are you, are you aiming to get a living wage where a single person could bring in like a hundred thousand a year? Is that something we could aim for? 80,000? Uh, well, the living the living wage is is it's it is significantly more in Vancouver and Victoria than other parts of the province, and that's largely driven by the cost of housing. I think it's something we we sort of find interesting when we're when we're looking at what goes into the methodology of a living wage and trying to grapple with it. And we very much kind of stick with the principles of we want to reflect what the cost of living for families face is. And there are certain things that government can do that helps lower the cost of living. So a few years ago, the living wage actually went down, and the reason it went down was because there were a lot of government investments to help families with children. So things like the Canada Child benefit and um, then more subsidies to help with childcare and those kind of pieces actually really really help make a difference for families for children even if other costs were going up um but those changes those changes would uh have kind of and when the ten dollar a day childcare comes in that will be another thing that will help lower the cost of living however we've seen this year the costs have increased for housing for gas for food for everything um we'll be publishing the new living wage in november i don't know yet what it will be but looking at the way that the cost of living has gone up i suspect it will it will be quite an increase in the past we've usually told employers when you're looking at your budgets and you want to prep what the living wage increase might be we tell them and we encourage about two to three percent increase on an annual mm -hmm. basis this year it might be a lot more than that just because the cost of living has has shot up and we want to make sure that the living wage always reflects what the cost is for for a family with children thank you um i should have mentioned it earlier but the, i do want to announce that the bcma is going through the process of becoming a certified living wage employer which we're quite excited about um and does tie into why we wanted to offer the session as we want to encourage others in our sector to explore certification as a living wage employer but that's enough about me there's a question in the chat here from debbie uh, can you offer some suggestions of how to speak to program officers at government funding organizations about increasing budgets and grant asks in order to meet living wages I am muted because I'm a funder. <laughs> so I'm just acknowledging, I don't work for government, but acknowledging the power dynamic that exists, I think that can be a tricky conversation if you don't have a relationship or don't know where the uh, program officer is coming from. I wonder if something like this webinar is uh, a reference point to start the conversation, uh, suggesting that you've recently you know, you may, may or may not be recent, but you've recently learned of living wage certifications. Uh, you're very welcome to reference Vancouver Foundation. We do a lot of work with the province, so we should be known by them to say that uh, they've encouraged all organizations to pay a living wage. How, what is the government's take on that? Um, I always suggest asking questions rather than making 
recommendations to open a conversation uh, because that's an easier way to assess how the person might receive it. Thank you. Great, ad also great advice for life there, Dara, with any difficult conversation, go in with a question first rather than an opinion. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I'd like to say is that we are, we have been having conversations with, with government, both specific departments and then also with, um, with the uh yeah with different departments and i think and the ministry in particular for poverty and uh poverty and uh poverty reduction and social development and there's a lot of talk where they get it and i do know that there are beginning to be certain changes in certain procurement contracts and applications within government i think it's a very i think there's lots of different procurement pieces and lots of different processes to work through i think there's a bit of an understanding at the moment now about the importance of kind of um living wages as part of that so i think if you go into those conversations about living wage hopefully um there should be there should be more of an understanding and an awareness there but again um i think dara's advice was 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 great thank you i'd also like to add if you haven't attended any of the bcma's um previous webinars where we had funders join us we have heard time and time again from um arts bc um the BC Council or Canadian Council for the Arts and uh, Canadian Heritage when we have program officers join us that they really underline do do reach out. They have their contact information available if you have questions when you are going through um, applying for funding that they are open and that might be a good uh, good opportunity to take them up on that offer and, and reach out and ask that question. Um, we have a question here in the chat from Ryan, and then we also have one in the Q&A, so I'll just get to Ryan's and then pop over to the Q&A. Um, from Ryan, do you have recommendations for people wanting to advocate with their employers for living wages, cost of living increases, especially for people working in smaller organizations that don't have formal HR salary policies? Henry, do you want to do you want to go first from a kind of employer perspective? Yes, I've, I'm trying to kind of process the the question a little. Um, um, yeah, well, I think that it's uh, it's important to uh, to to definitely um, um, to mention and then to um, you know sort of. Um, um, Sorry, because I'm like from the employer's perspective, so I'm just thinking like, mm, what's the other perspective? But um, but basically, I think that uh, for example, how we do we did uh, what we did at Century was that uh, you know even though the funding level uh, was not the funding was not increased, uh, let's say our operating funds, but as an employer, I think that uh, we we just really feel the responsibility to. Um, you know, although we have the existing pool of money, but we just want to, we did some shifting in the budgets. Um, and then we, for example, we'll lower certain costs and we increase um, the budget for uh, uh, staff salaries and benefits. Um, so I think that um, to me, uh, when I was doing all of these uh, budgeting, it's very meaningful because, you know, there is more um, sort of care and then um, resources, financial resources allocated to um, to the staff. So I think that um, it's it's not a it shouldn't be a sort of a one way street. <laughs> so it's uh, not that the uh, the the employees should like request or anything. I just feel that you know if a organization really is interested in being a living wage employer, they should be proactive in you know, um, setting up priorities, um, uh, trying to uh, reallocating some of the, the funds um, to better support the staff. Um, yeah, and then I, I guess for this question specifically, uh, recommendations for people wanting to advocate um, with their... Mm, well, if I were you, I would probably present a calculation saying, this is how much I pay, how much rent I pay, and um, uh, how much uh, money I spend on um, food and, you know, like monthly uh, uh, living expenses. Um, and then so compared to uh, what I get paid. Um, and uh, uh, 
yeah, and then to 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 kind of demonstrate that to um, the employer. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful. Uh, yeah, what do you think, Anastasia? I noticed that Dara had unmuted herself, so I don't know if she wants to go first, and then I can chip in. Sure, thanks. I just wanted to acknowledge that I think employees asking their employer parallels the power dynamic that exists between funders and fundees. And so it can be a pretty awkward conversation. And I would apply the same advice to approach it with curiosity. It is actually the advice that I apply to every aspect of my life, but especially if you anticipate there's going to be discomfort or conflict, uh, having both worked for bosses and been the boss and the employer responsible for managing the budget. Uh, you know, a question like, one, are you familiar with living wages in our region? Um, if there's a gap between yours and not? And two, how is our budget structured? Are there, you know, I'm curious, is there anything that would prevent us from paying a living wage? Because it's likely there is at least a perception, if not a reality, uh, being very familiar with nonprofit budgets, so many of the dollars are restricted that the employer may not have the ability to quickly do that. And so coming in in a collaborative and curious way may open up more conversation and possibility to problem solve or to reference something like, oh, are you worried that our funder, our primary funder, Vancouver Foundation, will be worried about that? Well, I just heard that that's not actually the case, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I agree with everything, everything that's that's been said. I think it's also potentially also worth highlighting those employers that might be similar to your organization to say, oh, I've just noticed they're a living wage employer. That's quite cool. Is there something that potentially we could go for? Um, because I think what we've what we found with the growth, and we've seen such significant growth over the past two years with the number of living wage employers coming on board. And I think it's because they see one in their sector and they, an organization that's a bit like them, and they're like, oh, if they can do that, then then we can do that. Um, and if needs be we're very happy to have conversations at the kind of the employer level to talk through the, the different steps needed um put them in touch with other organizations so often it's like business owners a business owner uh, or exec director exec director can kind of have those frank conversations of oh how difficult was that budget hit or what did you do with those pieces and and help help kind of map out those journeys but um i think i i think dara's totally right it's important to acknowledge that kind of power discrepancy when it's an employee asking an employer um for that for that pay increase and looking at other ways and approaching those kind of difficult conversations with curiosity is always great advice thank you we have a question here in the q a um i think this is gonna be for anna um why do we base living wages on families? It seems to discriminate against sing single individuals whose life choices may not be to have a traditional household who choose or find themselves to be single parents or find themselves at a new stage in their life where they are a single income earner. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, and it's one we, we try and grapple with. Um, so the living wage calculation, it, initially the program started it was an initiative of first called child and youth advocacy society and it was very much seen as a kind of tool to combat child poverty um and it's important to recognize that there are lots of different family types across across bc um those with children those without children um single income dual income um and i think at the time a family with two parents and two children was the kind of the most common family type in bc and so that was why it was picked as the kind of the model family to work on and then when you're looking at kind of changes over over years it's important to kind of keep the same the same kind of group as you're going forward to kind of track those changes what's been really interesting in the past couple of years is that um the living wage because of certain investments that have been amazing and brilliant and welcome to help support families with children is that um we've now or in other parts of the country they've realized that actually the living wage for single people may actually be slightly higher than that for those with children and children are expensive we're not sending them out to work we're not we're not doing those pieces uh, and it is a bit of a surprise so we are we're beginning to look and we're seeing i think this year's calculation will continue with the with the family of four um just because because that's the way it is. But we are looking in, in the future, we might move towards a weighted average that might take into account uh, single people, single parents, um, a few others. Um, it's always that difficult balance of how many different, there are lots of different family types and how many different ones did you go through. Um, but it is definitely something we're aware of and trying to do. Um, it, initially, also the living wage was a family with, with two children because, um, two parents and two children because 
it was seen to be higher. Um, it was seen that we kind of wanted to, to look at kind of uh, government tools to campaign with um, and use to, to do that. Um, and families with kids was the most expensive family type, but it is it's something we're aware of that, that families are changing. Uh, and maybe that is something we need, to, we need to be looking at and reflecting on. So it is something we're aware of and, and looking at in detail. Thank you. We have a question here in the chat from Debbie. Um, specifically for Henry. Henry, when you reorganized budgets in order to provide a living wage, did you get pushback from funders or other groups for having to cut back on programming or other areas? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, I think that paying people better doesn't necessarily mean, you know, cut back on programming. Uh, actually, it might motivate. Uh, and then actually, it's, it, it's probably more helpful. Uh, so no, and I don't think the funders are really in, uh, because all the, um, uh, your grant applications will go through a peer assessment process. And uh, I'm sure your peers <laughs> in the sector would like to know that you are paying people better, um, or at least that's my perception. And um, I don't see why um, the, the funders would have issues uh, with, uh, you know, uh, sort of these, uh, the reorganization of the budget. Um, uh, but again, I'm just, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, it's not that we're cutting um, program, uh, programming costs to, um, to, um, uh, to increase uh, the amounts um, in um, uh, human resources, uh, but it's to see how, with a limited budget, you can uh, you can work with it uh, in a more um, efficient and uh, smart way. And then I think that um, uh, to me, it's very important that uh, uh, the staff is labor. It's not. Um, uh, undervalued. So um, I think that there are just decisions to make uh, when you are budgeting. Uh, but no, uh, the simple answer is no. Uh, never got any pushback. Thank you. I think that was something that I um, was really thinking about entering into this webinar. Having worked in the sector for so long, I had made it a practice when I was making requests, be that professional development funding or looking for grant funding to um, ask for a lower amount because perhaps they'd fund me because it's a smaller ask, as opposed to um, the perception of asking for what it is that we need and, and highlighting that it's for something like a living wage so that the funder gets to fund a living wage and I would therefore get to pay a living wage, the much better perception and approach than asking a smaller amount in hopes that you would get funded the smaller amount. Because also then you get trapped into a cycle of then asking for that smaller amount mm -hmm. next year and the year after that and the mm -hmm. year after that and it doesn't kind of address the systemic issues. I also mm -hmm. think it's important to recognize that when we're talking there can be that ickiness in the kind of sector of talking about wages because and I think Dara really articulated it really well they're kind of like oh the wages of oh it shouldn't be used to pay for staff but i think when we're reflecting mm -hmm. on a living wage it's not about ensuring that some that you a six-figure salary or anything like that it's just ensuring that people can have earn enough to be able to pay the rent and pay for food and pay for childcare. and these aren't kind of these aren't luxuries it's not sort of ensuring that people can then go off and they're, they're sort of spending that money in other places it's really just the essentials for life and if you can't um we've also found that for employees that don't that that when they've moved to a living wage, uh, being a living wage employer, actually it's, it's helped lower costs in other spaces in the sense that um, it's helped lower staff turnover. So they don't have to pay, uh, they don't have maybe paid for the recruitment costs and those things associated with it. Also retraining people or that gap when someone leaves and then before someone else starts and kind of that can often be a difficult and especially in a small organization with only like three staff, when someone leaves that is felt really badly. Um, and so if you can make sure that people are earning enough that they're not necessarily looking to, to work elsewhere, um, then that can then that can really help address some of those other points. So although there might be a, a hit at the beginning when you look at those budgets and you realize that you're lifting that budget line slightly to bring them up to the living wage. And actually, I'd encourage people to look and realize that maybe it's not not such a scary figure when they look at it. It might they, they might think it's scary. And then once they actually do the math, they can look and realize, OK, 
it's this much. Uh, and you may not be able to introduce it immediately. Uh, it might be that if someone is on minimum wage at the moment, that this, this year, you're going to lift them up to $18 an hour. And next year, you're going to lift them up to 2052. And then the year after that, you'll lift them up to the next year's living wage. So you can look at those budgets and look at how you're going to bring people up, uh, depending on where you are at the moment. Um, but it really is just, it's making sure that people can earn enough to be able to, to live and to survive in, in cities and places that are getting more and more and more expensive. Thank you so much, Anna. It's such a good point. And I think that touches to, um, I think, Debbie's previous question about um, having to cut back on programming other areas. When you have that staff that have the institutional knowledge that have been there um, and have the training that you've provided, then you have staff who can creatively come up with different programming ideas and they know the site and your organization and the work that you do and be able to um, provide that programming and actually have staff there to deliver programming. Um, Debbie does have a comment in the chat. Um, in their experience, funding was frozen for basically the past 10 years. And when speaking to program officers, they were told that they were already getting the maximum amount of funding. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that or if that is just a... Uh, I'll, I'll add to that. Sometimes the often the amounts of funding are finite. Certainly what we're doing at Vancouver Foundation is moving towards offering all unrestricted funding so that organizations can be empowered to determine how to spend it. And that's one of the systemic issues within the funding world is that often funds are not unrestricted and so it's dictated how you can use it. But whenever you have those opportunities, I think then it goes back onto the organization to determine what they can say no to in service of uh, funding the work that you can actually do. Because I think the tendency in the sector, uh, a lot of us are drawn here because we are really driven by the mission. And so that leads to saying yes to almost everything when in fact we often don't have the adequate resources to deliver on that. So for me, it's in part an exercise in saying, no to funders, not about the grant that they're offering you, but about the expectation that comes with it. If it's unrealistic and it costs more to do it, then that, those are important conversations to have. And not just with funders, but also board members, team members, everyone who's making the strategic decisions in an organization. Yeah, I think that that's the um, uh, that's definitely a reality uh, in the sector in terms of the funding level, and then we probably see a, a rollout of um, um, additional uh, funds in the past two years uh, because of COVID. Uh, but sometimes I'm curious um, whether they are um, sustainable or not. Um, but I think that um, this just connects it to a larger conversation uh, on, um, on labor and capacity, uh, because I think that um, the, um, I think that there are priority expense items in an organization that should be, uh, uh, pay more attention to and then um, and how to really uh, to to come to build that structure where you know people feel supported feel supported and also uh, you'll be able to deliver programs uh, as an organization so there is like sort of like a like a balance act uh, in there and then um, definitely I think that um, uh, when um, uh, conversing with the the funders I think that uh, uh, I'm talking. I'm talking more about the the public funders uh, specifically in our case, um, to really reflect uh, uh, on those realities and problems and challenges. I think that it's important, and then that uh, because um, that would uh, that sort of mirrors some of what's happening in the sector uh, in that way. Um, so definitely. I think it's important to, uh, you know, to to really um, record and document those challenges, and then um, and then um, uh, find opportunities to really uh, discuss them. Um, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> I'd, I'd also encourage if um if anyone does try and approach for funding in an organization and they they say oh it's to pay a living wage and if they they get pushback from that to reach out to us and we can have we wouldn't necessarily go back to that department to say this organization has spoken to us about this but we can look at how we can do advocacy ourselves at living wage um and we can have those conversations to say oh is it um from either if it's a government one at the ministerial level or um below um and we can try and address we can address the issues that way and that can also hopefully help with the power dynamics slightly um with those organizations and maybe even also in the same way of um for those employees that want to do advocating for themselves to earn a living wage within those organizations they can also contact us and um we can potentially do look at how we can do outreach to those organizations to kind of educate more on living wage and those pieces um we're trying to go with the, the carrot approach as much as possible rather than the stick but looking at how we can how we can do that and work and, and the role that we can play as that slightly separate organization Thank you so very much. I don't see any new questions coming in the chat or Q&A. Um, so I think we are good to wrap up here. I'll include a link in the follow-up email with a link to the recording um, to Living Wage BC so you can explore their um, information and resources further. If any last points um, from, our, from our panelists today that you'd like to share? I'm just going to end by putting my uh, the email address in the chat. So if anyone has Please. been watching along and they've got specific questions to reach out to us and we can help pick those up um, with those pieces. So I'm just going to put that for everyone. But thank you everyone for, for coming. And thank you so much in particular for Dara and Henry for taking time out to do this, which is always good to show when I think it's really helpful for us to be able to make the case for living wage. And it's not just living wage for families making the case for living wage for other organizations too. So thank you so much, Dara and Henry, and for everyone watching along. Hopefully um, you feel empowered to talk about living wage within your organization. Thank you so much. Um, that Actually, I think that wraps up my thank you slide. Um, thank you so much, Anastasia, uh, Dara, and Henry for joining us today. It was absolutely wonderful to have you share your expertise um, and knowledge and thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for our participants for joining and for your thoughtful questions. Um, we do have some exciting programming happening next week. Uh, if you're interested for BC Museums Week, we'll be joining um, the Canadian Anti-Hate Group for a discussion on state of hate, how museums can identify and address hate. You can register for that at museum.bc.ca. Um, thank you again so much for spending your morning with us. I hope you have a wonderful sunny afternoon and do take care. Um, and thank you again. Thank you, everybody. Also happy to uh, to chat uh, with uh, anyone, um, uh, I guess, from the perspective of, um, of an employer and an organization in terms of how we um, um, uh, sort of become a living wage employer and then how, what are some of the uh, the immediate challenges or uh, uh, issues that need to that we need to deal with. And um, yeah, I think that the, it's like, between peers, uh, always good to um, uh, to chat and see to how how everything's going. So I welcome that. Thank you, Henry. I'll include your email. Yes. I'll Thank include you. it in the wrap up email as well as um, Anastasia's email, so folks can reach out if they have any questions. And I greatly appreciate you um, opening your inbox to inquiries as an organization who's already paying a living wage. That uh, would be very helpful for folks. Thank you so very much. Thank you.